Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. We're going to record right now. We are up and recording a scene. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much. We've been very excited to be having you on. I know we had a couple uh, sort of scheduling hiccups to try to get us going, but now we're here. You are in the UK today, is that correct, or are you traveling somewhere? Yeah, no, I'm in London right now. Absolutely. Okay, wonderful. And for those who don't know, and, and I see, I've been following you for now at least several years now, and, and you've been a sort of a champion of, I don't know who to, who to say, but I mean, the, cha- the champion of the truth, I think, and in my view, obviously, we, we, we have some similarities in, in what we believe in, and you've been... Uh, you know, sort of many, many people look up to and respect you at the same time you have your detractors, as you're, as you're probably aware, as, as, as do I. But let me let, just give us a, like a five-minute summary of, of, of your life, not your life story, but just a five-minute summary of who's, who's Dr. Asim Mahata real quick, and then we can sort of get into a couple, couple nice topics here. Sure, sure, Sean. So for me, um, you know, I've got involved in this campaign for greater transparency, whether it's nutrition science or whether it's around too much medicine. Um, because of my own experience as a clinician over several years, um, becoming increasingly aware of more and more people who are coming in with chronic diseases, uh, healthcare systems being under increasing pressure. You know, I, I qualified in medicine 2001, um, and uh, you know, I, I subspecialized in cardiology. And I realized probably around maybe 10 years ago, a little bit before then, um, that we were having you know more stress on the system. So for me, uh, my inspiration to do the kind of work and advocacy I've done really came from my patients. And people often ask me, was there an epiphany moment? I think I probably had many, but, but one sort of, I think one memorable story for me was having treated a patient in the middle of the night for a heart attack with a, with a coronary stent. He'd come in uh, in his early 50s. Um, you know, I was on call. I was a, the specialist registrar, you know, the kind of junior doctor, but doing the procedures uh, we treated a patient next morning in the ward round, giving him the usual, um, you know, the lecture as we go around, you know, you're lucky to be alive, um, you know, but you're in a good position now, take your medications religiously, you know, and we give a cocktail of meds, um, and also follow a healthy lifestyle, stop smoking, which I always used to tell patients, interestingly, uh, I'm probably the only person that did it uh, consistently. If a patient was a smoker, I would tell them that you stopping smoking is more powerful at your, for reducing the risk of you having a further heart attack or, or, or dying prematurely than all the medications we can give you combined. And on top of that, being aware of the fact that we have this problem with obesity, which uh, was declared as a, um, a public health crisis by the World Health Organization in 2004. I mean, we're talking about 15 years now. And, you know, what have we done to tackle it, if you think about that? But, you know, going th- being aware of that, I also was talking to this chap about following a healthy diet. And I remember uh, when I was telling him this, he was actually getting, he got served a burger and fries uh, by the hospital. And he looked at me and he said, Doc, how do you expect me to change my lifestyle if you're serving me the same crap that brought me in in the first place? And then I looked around and, you know, Sean, for me personally, even from a, uh, how should I say it, from a, a personal interest or an emotional level, I've always been somebody that has been very conscious about my personal health. I was, you know, a sportsman at school. I captained sports teams. I, you know, go to the gym regularly. I, I would say I'm, I'm pretty disciplined, obsessed, whatever you want to call it, by exercise. Um, and also good food. You know, I'd, I'd grown up in a household where you had home-cooked food every day. I learned to cook when I was a teenager. Um, so I was also very aware and conscious about how diet affects health, not to the degree I am now, uh, but certainly um, I looked around, uh, you know, the hospital where I've worked for my career. And I thought, well, you know, given what I knew and what I'd read up on about the impact on diet and health, um, why were our hospitals a branding opportunity for the junk food industry? I mean, the, you know, 50% of the 1.4 National Health Service employees in this country now, Sean, over 50%, 
Um, this includes um, nurses, doctors, um, non-clinical staff are overweight or obese themselves, you know, which was a clear example that whatever education your, your people get, um, and we can argue the toss about what, what the right education is, but even from the very basic aspect of people eating non-processed food, the education is ineffective when the food environment is working against you. So uh, for me, that's kind of where my um, initial campaigning, if you like, started. I thought, you know, if we're going to solve the obesity epidemic, we as a medical profession need to start in our own backyard. And uh, I actually ended up, I'd, I'd always been interested in writing. I'd written for my school newspaper. I'd written a few articles for The Guardian as a junior doctor around um, health policy stuff in the past. And then I thought I'd go write an article uh, on how we need to improve hospital food. I, uh, I initially contacted Jamie Oliver, who's a very famous chef over here, who did a lot of work highlighting um, how bad school food was, and he was concerned about child obesity, and I thought it'd be a good idea that he could get involved in a campaign to improve hospital food, not just for patients, but for staff as well. So I wrote a commentary for um, the Observer newspaper, which eventually got published, uh, and I, I didn't expect it would have so much of prominence. It was like a front page commentary. Um, and it was uh, I Mend Hearts. So the title of the, uh, the article was I Mend Hearts and I See Our Patients Serve Junk Food by, by the Hospital. And um, it, it, just to give perspective about the prominence that the editor gave to it, um, the second page, half a page, was actually an article from the new prime minister at the time, David Cameron. So they've given more prominence to my article than his. And, uh, and then things took off for me from there. Uh, you know, and the rest is history, I suppose. <laughs> Seem in recent times, um, well, well, you 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 helped co-author uh, a couple studies, or at least one study I'm aware of, talking about saturated fat. Not, I can't remember the exact title, but saturated fat does not cause arteries, and you know, cardiovascular disease is an inflammatory vascular disease, or something along those lines. A very controversial study that uh, many people have cited now. Um, can you just briefly, as a, you know, you're the fourth cardiologist we've had on. We've had Dr. Joel Kahn on, who obviously doesn't share your opinion. We've had uh, Nadir Ali, uh, Brett Sheer, and now yourself. And so I'm seeing more and more cardiologists, which would be the last group you would, you would expect to uh, see uh, sort of embracing a higher fat approach, you know, just given the sort of the history around cardiology and, and the, you know, sort of the diet heart, diet heart hypothesis, which is uh, kind of uh, ruled the, the sort of the, the thinking for, for decades now. And so um, how does it feel to be sort of on the sort of the either the leading edge or the the heretical side of, of cardiology and to be espousing views that, you know, the majority of your profession doesn't agree with? Yeah, it's a good question, Sean. Um, I think when I first started off, I'd say things have, have, have definitely evolved in a good way uh, in regards to um, my views of how saturated fat has caused heart disease being shared by other eminent doctors, including cardiologists. But initially, uh, I wrote a very well publicized, and I think this really sort of set the ball rolling in terms of the interest in the research space and, and further studies came off the back of this. I wrote an editorial in the BMJ in 2013 called Saturated Fat is Not the Major Issue and said we need to focus on refined carbs and sugar instead. And I had really sort of tried to put the jigsaw together on, um, first of all, looking at the data that was available on saturated fat didn't show any really strong link with heart disease, first and foremost. But then at the same time, it was accepted, uh, maybe less so now, but it was accepted that saturated fat raised cholesterol. So if saturated fat raises cholesterol, then I then have to try and work out, well, how important is cholesterol in heart disease? And we got that wrong as well. And if we've got that wrong, then what about statins? You know, so I put this all together in one 800-word editorial, which was press released by the PMJ. Um, and became a huge news story. I mean, it was BBC News headlines over here. It was front page of three British newspapers. I was on Fox News Chicago, CNN International talking about this. And, um, and actually, since then, um, if anything, the evidence has confirmed what I initially thought with that editorial. And most recently, uh, the, uh, I wrote an editorial with um, Rita Redberg, who is the editor of JAMA Internal Medicine. And the, um, you know, she's a practicing cardiologist at UCSF in California. Uh, and Pascal Meyer, and he's the editor of BMJ Open Heart. And we said very clearly, um, having looked at all the evidence ever since I'd written that piece and other studies that come out, that this was a wrong focus, that, you know, saturated dietary saturated fat does not clog the arteries. There's no consistent strong evidence for that. And actually, this has been the wrong approach, wrong focus, including our obsession with LDL cholesterol. Um, and, and of course, there are millions of people being over medicated on statins. And I can argue 
that with anyone, anytime, any place. So, you know, that, that I think is irrefutable. You know, that millions of people around the world, probably the vast majority of people, if they even looked at the, if, if we even discuss the evidence that we have available, which itself is non-transparent, most of those people would choose not to take a stand. So we've got a huge problem of lack of transparency in the system. But more importantly, Sean, um, I think it's also about uh, the hierarchy. Like, you know, we've misplaced this focus on, on LDL cholesterol, saturated fat. Um, it, listen, it may have some role at very extreme levels. I'm not, I'm not saying that. But for the majority of the population, this focus has detracted from the more important uh, issue, which is insulin resistance metabolic syndrome and how we can tackle that through lifestyle changes. So really, that's where the emphasis should shift. And, you know, and that, of course, includes um, you know, following a, um, a dietary pattern that's going to be conducive to reducing you know, the chance of metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance. And that doesn't necessarily need to be low carb. I think there are different approaches. Um, and head to head still, my personal view, looking at the evidence, I think the low carbohydrate approach um, is still you know, better than, than going for a non-processed low fat, uh, low fat food approach. But you know, we, we don't have hard outcome data to compare it. Um, it's certainly at the very least not inferior. And for a lot of people, Sean, it's about personal preference as well. You know, what do they, you know, food is about also enjoyment. It's not just about health. People want to enjoy what they eat. You know, it's about quality of life. It's, it's so many other things than just health. It's about culture uh, as well as all of that. So, yeah. I think, um, yeah. no, so, so I think say... things have evolved, but, but Sean, I think there, there, listen, I think one of the reasons why there has been a backlash um, to this is that, you know, it goes against the conventional wisdom that has been propagated for several decades, uh, the demonization of saturated, the fear around cholesterol, the fear around, um, you know, its relationship with people dying, lives being, you know, in quotes, uh, people saying lives being destroyed, they, which of course, you know, premature heart disease is something you want to avoid. But when, you know, for me, my responsibility as a doctor is to scientific integrity, it's to my patients, looking at the totality of data up to date, and of course that may change. Um, but right now, it's very clear this has been a misguided approach. So if people want to um, argue against that, then, you know, some of it is going to be intellectual conflicts of interest. A lot of it is going to be also driven uh, either consciously or subconsciously by financial interests. And just to put things in perspective, uh, Sean, you know, the, the whole cholesterol saturated fat statin industry, the fear of cholesterol, we're talking about a trillion dollar industry. I mean, it's estimated by 2020, by next year, total revenues from sales stands could reach, just from statin drugs could reach a trillion US dollars. That's not a small amount of money. And with all of my experience, Sean, as well, not just about these um, looking at the evidence, it's about also reaching out and connecting with, you know, I've done a lot of work here to the private advocacy. I've connected with medical establishment here. I have uh, connected with politicians of every political party. I have uh, known and spoken to several secretary states for health. And the conclusion is very clear in many private conversations with them, the industry has too much influence over our health. And just to kind of summarize this in a, in a different way, um, I spoke recently and I wrote about this in The Guardian to Marcia Angel. Uh, you may know Marcia Angel is a former editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, considered the highest impact medical journal in the world. And she said to me, and I think this summarizes the problems we have right now, she says the real battle in healthcare is one of truth versus money. And everything that I have experienced up to date has confirmed that she's right. Yeah, I'm aware of Marsha Angle. She was, she was the first female editor of the, uh, of the New England Journal. And I think she was for 20 years. She spent as a journalist and she basically retired and said, I can't trust it anymore. And it was kind of a sh shocking revelation. One of the things you said, which I think is very important, is this hard endpoint, because that is such an important concept, because so many people... We, we get so wrapped around these biomarkers and we can't, and we can't agree what the biomarkers mean. You know, we've been, we've, we've been myopically focused on LDL cholesterol, assuming that is a proxy for cardiovascular disease. And we're finding out that that's not the case. And so what do we, what do we, can we do a study that would actually get us to these hard endpoints? Because I find it to be very uh, unlikely or implausible that we're going to, we're going to run people in, in a study for long enough, you know, a good study, not just an epidemiologic survey where we can actually see what these hard endpoints end would be. Is, is that, is that feasible? I think it is feasible, Sean. Actually on that note, I'm glad you raised that point. Uh, from my um, interpretation of the evidence that's there, I think one of the other things that I campaigned on this whole issue about um, nutrition as well for me is that, uh, and several years ago, I read a paper in, one, in the European Heart Journal um, that strongly suggested, with good evidence, that dietary changes can actually have a rapid impact on both cardiovascular morbidity and mortality. 
And that evidence is there. Now, we can always strengthen the evidence and we need more data. But I think, you know, of course, you know, we need to replicate stuff. So we take the Leon Hart study. Um, some people may have thought it was an aberrant uh, kind of study, but the, the impact of a Mediterranean diet versus the standard American, you know, Heart Association low fat diet um, run by Michelle de Lourgeril, a very eminent cardiologist um, and published in The Lancet, showed that they were able to reduce um, heart attacks and, and mort or cause mortality within just two or three years. So I think that what we need to do is retest that. And I think with the available data we have now, we can put things head to head. I mean, I know Dean Ornish, um, you know, who did his uh, sort of lifestyle uh, intervention study, which he used, we used a vegan diet. It shows some benefit, certainly not, not massive, but some benefit from multiple interventions, um, whether it's because of the diet or whether it's because people start smoking or whether they exercise more or maybe most plausibly, uh, I'm, I'm coming around to the thought that some of, you know, maybe a lot of this uh, reduction in hard endpoints could be driven also by um, stress reduction from meditation. Um, certainly when it comes to cardiovascular disease, I think we can we, we've got enough data to test this out and even do a head to head. And in fact, I'm actually in the process of designing a trial uh, to do that. But I think what's crucial with my uh, experience looking at um, how research, you know, if we all have our own biases, Sean, I think one of the most important things that, uh, about this trial, which I, I, I'm hoping to get funded, is it has to be non-biased funding research. So whoever funds it, ideally government, you know, cannot profit from the results directly. I think that's one of the problems we have is there's probably a lot of good research out there. But I think that if, if it's funded by, for example, if the dairy industry fund a study or the sugar industry fund a study, you know, people are going to be very skeptical, even if the results are valid. So I think what we need is to replicate the studies independently. And I think, you know, that I think goes across all of medicine. I mean, even for drug trials now, I think the next stage would be that, you know, we have open data, but I think those trials that are funded by drug companies need to be independently replicated before we can take them at face value, before we then start prescribing these medications on, on swathes of the population. Because we know that, um, you know, if we were doing everything right, Sean, we wouldn't be in the health crisis we're in at the moment. Yeah, one of the criticisms, particularly with, the, you know, with the drug studies, but I'm sure there's a lot of studies that fall in this category is, you know, a lot of these negative results never see the light of day. And so one of the things it seems like if you're going to do a study, you should announce it in advance, announce you yes. know, your methods, your, your supposed uh, criteria, your, 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 the results you're looking at, and that needs to play out and be, you know, and the data needs to be open to everybody, uh, regardless of results, rather than ending up in the bottom drawer and never seeing the light of day. Because I think that, I don't know how many studies out there that, because I remember when I was in medical school, I did a study on florbipropin, which was a, you know, it's a, uh, it was a uh, COX-2 inhibitor, kind of a novel COX-2 inhibitor, and we were doing these, these studies on rabbits looking if they would, if it would affect osteomyelitis, because there's some thought that they could impact the osteomyelitis. And I mean, it just, uh, it just didn't work like we thought it did, would have, and it, it never got published. And so it's kind of like one of those things where if the drug doesn't work, you never see the results. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a big problem. Uh, and, and I think the regulations need to change, the law needs to change as well, because, you know, you just need two positive studies on, on the drug before you can get it approved. There's sometimes even just one and it may well be that several studies are, are on the drug previously showed no benefit or even potential harm. You know, so this is not really even, it's not scientific, to be honest. And, and this is a big problem. And, and one of the reasons we, we, we are not able, we haven't changed the system is because most people are not aware of this problem, Sean, as well. You know, I think nobody in their right mind would accept that information if they were told, by the way, you know, this drug that's been approved, there were 11 studies that showed it didn't have any benefit, one showed harm, and suddenly you get a positive result and, and suddenly it gets approved. You know, this, this is a big problem. So we need to think about that um, and, and get that information out there because I think mo I believe in democracy. I believe in information. I, you know, and I think most doctors and patients would find that totally unacceptable. I think something else to mention as well, other than hard endpoints, is um, a lot of studies actually you know, have been traditionally designed according to what the researchers uh, or the companies who are designing them you know, to measure outcomes that they want to measure. But not enough studies are done to look at what patients want. And one of the things I argue around the lifestyle approach, lifestyle medicine, whatever you want to call it, in terms of, you know, getting people to change their lifestyle, coming off the pills, is that in general, not always, you know, there's always going to be exceptions to the rule. But in general, when people change their lifestyle for the better, their quality of life improves, Sean, very quickly. You know, you know that. I've experienced it. Um, and within, within weeks, you know, that can happen within weeks. Most of the... Uh, problems facing modern healthcare uh, are in tackling the chronic diseases, whether it's type 2 diabetes, um, you know, cardiovascular disease, hypertension. 
Uh, and actually, the drugs that are, are used to manage these conditions, um, you know, they may have a, a marginal benefit in improving a heart endpoint further down the line, reducing heart attack or stroke or, or, or death. But the one thing they can't do is improve your quality of life. And that's a difference. And I think that's really important. And, and, and for, for patients, um, I think, you know, at the end of the day, we've all got to go at some point. We're all going to die, you know, but I want to die uh, in, in, as, as healthy as possible. I want to have a good health span, not just a good lifespan. So I think um, we need to think about that as well. Dr. Mahultra, I want to bounce back to something you mentioned earlier, if you don't mind. And that has to do with uh, like the saturated fat intake and uh, blood cholesterol levels and and, and just any risk factors with that. And, and I, when you mentioned like, there's like scenarios in which you would maybe advise, advise differently than what you would, or you'd start with maybe a, a low carb approach, but could you just talk to us a bit about maybe some situations in which you'd advise a, a patient to reduce their saturated fat intake? You know, that's a really good question. And, you know, it hasn't happened to me that often. So, so again, you know, my, whatever data we have, a few randomized controlled trials, a lot of observation studies do still suggest that something, something, uh, and I'll, I'll tell you what I think that is, within the Mediterranean, traditional Mediterranean diet is beneficial. And biologically, it suggests it's from, you know, a mixture of, uh, uh, you know, of, of vegetables, oily fish, olive oil, nuts, that kind of thing. Um, you know, and that's traditional Mediterranean diet. I know people can argue about whether modern vegetables and fruit are the same as what people were eating 40, 50 years ago. I suspect there's been changes. But if you look at that from that perspective, um, I always say to my patients, you know, uh, from the evidence that we have available, the base of your diet should be this. Uh, in terms of saturated fat, I then say, listen, you know, things like cheese and steak, if you get the base right, from my perspective as a doctor, then I'm not too worried about the rest of it. I would personally never recommend, uh, just because I can't see any strong evidence that it's beneficial, I would never say that, you know, that bacon and, um, you know, and eggs and, uh, and steak should be, you know, for my heart patients certainly should be the base of the diet. But having said that, you know, I'm very interested, you know, I'm hearing a lot of positive reports, certainly anecdotally from anyone and everyone that has gone carnivore. You know, I'm hearing really great reports about that. I personally, at some point, will do it myself, for sure, because I'd be curious to see how I feel and, and what happens. Um, but we haven't got the data to say that this is a superior way in terms of any hard outcome, et cetera. And if people feel better, you know, uh, I always follow my patients up, you know, if they get better within a few weeks and months and they're happy and they're feeling great, then carry on. Their you know, blood markers improve if they're enjoying that. Um, some of my patients uh, have gone ketogenic and actually follow a very strong meat-based diet and they're doing great. Um, you know, and uh, as long as I've given them all the information to make an informed decision, um, then, you know, I, it's, it's then down to patient preferences and values. And some people may find that they enjoy just eating predominantly meat uh, and, and they feel good about it. And, and it, you know, any, everything else they've tried hasn't worked for them. So I think we've got to take that into perspective. It's always about individual patients. In terms of saturated fat, um, you know, we do have some people, and I've seen some of my patients myself who've seen me, who seem to have a, a, what we call a hyper response with their cholesterol. Uh, their LDL goes, does, does go up, shoot up quite a lot. Um, I say to them, listen, I don't know. The honest truth is we don't know if this is a, a big problem, especially as every other marker has improved. Uh, you know, the waist circumference has gone down, the blood pressure has improved, the glucose has improved, the HDL and triglycerides improved. So all these other markers have gone down, yet their LDL has shot up. And I'm very honest with them, you know, they, but they're worried. They will dock, you know, and, and because of the fear that's out there. So I say, well, listen, if, you know, if, if, if that's worrying you, then in this case, maybe then you should not, you know, your base fat should be olive oil and should get rid of the butter and the cheese and, uh, and the coconut oil uh, for their reassurance. Uh, but the honest truth is we don't know whether it's harmful. We don't really know in, these, in this particular subgroup. Now for a word from our sponsors. This episode of Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by Fat Snacks. Fat Snacks' mission is to make foods that taste incredible and make a keto or low-carb diet more enjoyable and sustainable. Personally, I'll throw a pack of their chocolate chip cookies in my travel bag when on the road or away from my kitchen. Other options include double chocolate chip, lemony lemon, and peanut butter. Next time someone tells you a keto diet is too restrictive, blow their minds by telling them to head over to fatsnacks.com forward slash HPO 
That's F-A-T-S-N-A-X dot C-O-M forward slash H-P-O and type in promo code H-P-O for 5% off their next order. Now back to the show. Hey, Asim, you, uh, you, you wrote a book, the Piapi Protocol. I hope I'm pronouncing the name of the, name of the town right. But, yeah, um, that's right. Kill and that's that, kind yeah. of, because uh, there's sort of this uh, belief that the Mediterranean diet is, you know, kind of the, 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 su- the super diet. Most people would agree a Mediterranean diet. But then there's a lot of controversy about what actually is a Mediterranean diet. And, you know, most people will say it's a, you know, if you listen to guys like Joel Kahn, they'll say it's a, you know, 99% leaves and, you know, maybe a, maybe a tiny piece of, of fish or something like that. And so, and then you also talk about the importance of monounsaturated fat. And I want to get your opinion on monounsaturated fat. And then I, I want to know, I, you know, as many people do not realize that beef is, the main fat in beef is actually monounsaturated fat, yeah. which would surprise <laughs> most people. So talk a little bit about the, yeah. about the Mediterranean Even pork, right? The main, main fat is in pork is monounsaturated. Exactly, fat. exactly. So. Yeah, uh, I think the Mediterranean diet, you know, if you go through these various regions, uh, whether it's Greece, Italy, south of France, um, you know, the, the diet does vary uh, depending on where you go. Uh, I, I think what, what you've got to understand that when, when there was um, a big increase in heart disease in the United States and the UK, and that peaked in the 60s and 70s, these countries traditionally had very low levels of heart disease, despite having quite a high smoking prevalence. And um, these communities, certainly Piopi, which is in southern Italy, they weren't affluent communities either. We all know in medicine, there is a strong link between socioeconomics and longevity. So these were all going against. So there's obviously something that they're doing, something in their, you know, I don't think it's genetic. You know, genetics have a bit of a role to play. You know, we think maybe genetics have, what, 10 to 20 percent role to play in, in all disease process, chronic disease processes. But most of it certainly was something else going on. And um, when you look at the data, the reason, you know, the Piopi diet was uh, one of the critiques of the Piopi diet saying, well, you, you've excluded pasta and bread. So there's so many things I can say about that. One thing is, you know, as a scientist, when you want to analyze and look at what components of the Mediterranean diet seem to be beneficial, have a bi- plausible biological mechanism of being benefit, it's not going to be the bread and the pasta. You know, it's going to, because, you know, um, heart disease is, is, is a disease which is based upon chronic inflammation and insulin resistance. High glycemic index carbohydrates are very, very unlikely to be beneficial. And certainly the components of that diet, they're going to be beneficial. Now, that doesn't mean you, people who are metabolically healthy can't get away with it, having it in, in moderate, small to moderate amounts. Uh, and these people clearly did. You know, they had it in moderate amounts. But again, it's a different, you know, the, the type of bread they ate, Sean, in those days is very different to a modern bread. Modern bread is ultra processed. You go to any, any uh, supermarket um, shopping mall, I think you like to say in the States, uh, it's uh, almost impossible to get bread that doesn't have added sugar in it. You know, this bread was freshly baked. It has a different glycemic index. It probably has a very different effect on the gut microbiome. And it wasn't eaten in, uh, on the background of people having sugar constantly as well. So when we wrote the, the book, uh, my co-author is a former Northern Irish international athlete. You know, for me, it was, this has to make some sense. And considering metabolic syndrome is what we're dealing with, um, you know, we had to remove uh, the bread and the pasta, et cetera. But uh, because, you know, that, that it wouldn't have made sense to say this was what was actually beneficial for them. So I would say, if somebody asked me about Piopi diet, I would say it's a, a better version of the traditional Mediterranean diet in many ways. Uh, because it removes the high glycemic carbohydrates. Hey, Asim, I, I, we've got just a little bit of time left. And I want to, you know, because like I said, I've been watching you for, uh, you know, a couple of years now and following your stuff and really, really admiring what you've been doing. And um, as you know, I, I get a lot of uh, pushback from people that don't like you eating meat, particularly vegans and vegan activists. And they're constantly sort of going after and, and you know, and, and being a sort of a, an athlete competitive guy, I don't mind pushing back and you know, I'll call them out on that. But I've noticed that in recent months, you've taken a bit more of a uh, anti-plant-based uh, stance, you know, and rather, and you know, many people are, are very sort of reserved and you know, it's, it's this academic thing, but I've seen you become a little bit more sort of uh, on, the, on the sort of anti-plant-based uh, sort of, uh, I guess, you know, sort of opposing that, so to speak. Can you talk a little bit about what's motivating you to maybe, maybe uh, take that stance? Yeah, Sean. So for me, you know, it's not about being against people being vegan as such. It's about misinformation that goes along with it. Um, and, and you may know, I, I sadly recently lost my mom. Uh, she died uh, end of November. 
and my mum was vegetarian all her life. And I know her particular type of vegetarianism, which is a very common type, it's not the worst type, uh, was very high in starchy foods. And my concern about the whole vegan movement, and, and, and also, Sean, the other thing is I understand where this comes from. You know, my mum was, was, was deteriorating. Um, she had rheumatoid arthritis. She developed, you know, she lost a lot of weight as she got older. She was, wasn't eating well. You know, but I knew that the reason you know, she probably, I'm sure, would have benefited from some fish and some meat. Um, you know, she was on B12 supplements. Um, and I knew and I understood where she was coming from uh, in sense of her reason was based upon a religious belief, you know, that it was wrong to eat animals. So I think that I respect and understand people that say that they want to follow this because of that reason. What I don't respect is people that abuse um, that position to try and suggest that this is the ultimate, you know, way of, uh, of living healthily. We know it's very clear veganism is a nutritionally deficient diet. More than 90% of people following it are either going to have to have ultra processed foods, which are fortified or take supplements. So, you know, this isn't being discussed. So this is just, it's, it's just a clear nonsense to think even from a common sense perspective that this is the healthiest diet to follow. It's complete nonsense. And there's a lot of harm attached to it. And I see patients, I have friends of mine, by the way, who are, you know, some of the, some very prominent vegans actually crowdfunded my film, The Big Fat Fix. They came to the parliamentary screening. They knew that I was, there was, there was scenes where, you know, we went to butchers, we talked about grass-fed beef, et cetera, et cetera. These are really good, decent people, and they know the reasons they're following veganism, but they don't push it on other people, and they certainly don't um, misinform people and give them false health claims. And I think that's the problem we've got. Now, if a patient comes to me, and, and I have many patients who are vegetarian, I will then do my best to advise them what the healthiest vegetarian diet is, and even people who are following veganism, but make them aware of the limitations. So really the anti that I am uh, against is, uh, is people who, who kind of misinform people and suggest this is the best thing for the environment, it's the best thing for health. You know, I don't think the evidence is strong to suggest that. Uh, and if anything, the, the evidence is, is contrary to that. So that's why I'm calling it out, especially as I think the other thing to mention, Sean, as well, is there's a huge um, industry, an ultra-processed food industry, that is, is benefic benefiting and pushing out um, this vegan message uh, under false claims. And, you know, you've got this, is it meat, what do you call it, the meat, meatless burger or whatever else? That's an ultra-processed product. You know, we should call it out for what it is. It's very simple. Anything that's industrially produced has five more ingredients is ultra-processed. You pick anything up, it says vegan. You know, so we're going to go down the same, you know, we're in danger of going down the same... Um, a route as we did with, with the whole low fat movement as well, I think. And I think that's where we need to, people need to kind of just, we need to push back. And, and I think the other thing is that the vegan movement, a lot of it on the health side, some of these prominent doctors or cardiologists are pushing it on the ultra low fat side as well, because they, you know, believe that dietary fat, uh, reducing dietary fat is going to improve their health and longevity as well, which the evidence is, is, is obviously very uh, inconsistent and, uh, and at best, I think, non-existent. Hey, I seem, uh, you know, and, and to that point, uh, we hear often that, uh, you know, a lot of the sort of vegan uh, physician advocates will say that uh, a vegan diet or a, or a very low fat diet has been the only diet that has been quote unquote proven to reverse heart disease. They'll re reference the work of Dean Ornish and Caldwell Esselton. Can you, or Esselton, can you? Com sort of complete and total nonsense, Sean. Yeah, Absolutely. Can you, can you, can That's you, a false statement. There's can never you been proven. Can you never elaborate on that? It's never been proven. Can, can what has been shown is in one small study from a multiple intervention study, including diet, smoking, cessation, exercise, and psychological stress reduction, there was, was, there was a reduction in, in some hard endpoints and maybe some uh, reduction in, uh, in um, uh, you know, uh, regression in coronary atheroma. But you cannot say this was because of the diet, not at all. So they think that this is, this is a false statement. Now, it may be true it may be proven to be true, but right now we don't have that evidence to suggest that. So I think what we need to do is really do a trial where we do a lifestyle intervention and compare um, this particular diet with, um, you know, with uh, what I think is, is probably the best for, for cardiovascular health, which is a, a low refined carbohydrate Mediterranean style diet. And Sean, if we do that trial and the vegan diet is shown clearly to reverse heart disease, maybe I will become vegan overnight. I'd be very happy to become vegan overnight. We don't have the evidence. Haven't we also seen that like the, the methods in which they were testing, the regressions have been shown to be like not as accurate as maybe we thought at the time as well? Yeah, I mean, I, so I trained as an interventional cardiologist. So I, you know, I've done thousands of angiograms. And of course, you change the angle very slightly on an image. 
you know, something that looks significantly stenosed or narrows can suddenly look less so just from a different angle, the very same narrowing. So yes, uh, ideally you want to be using uh, some very sort of good technology called intravascular ultrasound to look at specific coronary atheroma. But irrespective of all of this, as good scientists anyway, this hasn't been replicated. You know, this has to be replicated. And we know that looking at uh, surrogate markers is not enough. So um, it's very possible, it's plausible, potentially, that, uh, that an ultra low fat, um, non-processed food diet uh, can be beneficial for the health. I'm not saying that it's not. Um, is it any better? Can we say consistent that's any better than any other kind of non-processed diet? No, we can't say that. Uh, so I think that needs to be tested. And I think that it's unfortunate if people are making these claims, I don't think they're being scientific. They're not being scientific with these claims, Sean. If anybody's going around saying vegan diet is the only one being proven to reverse heart disease, that's basically just the, that's a fraudulent statement in my view. Yeah. And they're, they're out there for sure. Yeah. I mean, your point about uh, you know changing the angles. I mean, I've seen these, uh, you know, these things on uh, uh, osteoarthritis, you know, knee x-rays I see in the airplane magazine. And, you know, it's kind of like they'll show that before there's, there's narrowing of the joint and afterward there's less. And, you know, it's just how much knee flexions and how much you move the, how much you move the, the x-ray, you can change that tremendously. So I kind of laugh when I see it's how misleading that sort of stuff is. Um, when you, uh, so what do you think is the, the, the interventions or what are the markers that you like to look at? Well, here's a question I want to ask you. When do you find statin usage to be appropriate? What do you think that the actual valid indications are based on what do you think as a cardiologist and, and what things do you like to look at in evaluating your patients for cardiac risk? And the other thing is, you know, not everybody dies of a heart attack. There are a lot of other bad things you can get in life. And so I think this sure. sort of, you know, we have this, obviously heart disease kills a lot of people and it's the number one killing, number one killer, unless cancer starting to overtake it, at least in Western society. But I mean, there are a lot of other bad ways to go that may be worse. I mean, you know, if I die of a heart attack at 95, hey, that's probably better than spending, you know, seven years as a cancer patient, you know, at, at 88 sure. or something like that. So talk about those things. So first of all, in terms of heart disease, uh, Sean, I stick to tradition. You know, I'm a traditional sort of doctor in the sense I look at those, you know, those, those risk factors, whether it's hypertension, smoking, type 2 diabetes, um, atherogenic dyslipidemia. So that's, uh, you know, it's a cholesterol profile, which is characterized by high triglycerides, low HDL, et cetera. Um, LDL, I don't consider important if it's uh, below 4.9 and, and possibly even below 7.8. Uh, when it comes to people um, with, uh, when it comes to statins, for me, I've never been against statins. I'm, I'm against lack of transparency in their prescription. So, you know, I've prescribed statins to God knows hundreds, thousands of people in my career. Uh, I followed up many patients. I still see them. Um, from my own observations and from the data that's out there, you know, the side effects are, are that interfere with the quality of life are, are, are quite prevalent and very prevalent maybe 30, maybe 40%, who knows? Um, the good news is for most of those people, they are reversible. Uh, but the question then is what benefit are you getting? And unless you have established heart disease or you're very high risk, you know, you've got multiple risk factors, unless you've got, so essentially people, unless you've got heart disease or established heart disease, there is no consistent evidence of uh, mortality benefit when you look at all the data. And that's still based upon data that's non-transparent and industry funded. So this is still best case scenario, Sean. But the way I approach it is uh, with my patients, you know, this is not just my view. This has been something that has been mandated from the medical or colleges in this country, which is an establishment body that represents all, represents all doctors. Um, the world leading uh, researcher in health literacy, um, Gerd Gigerenza at the Max Planck Institute in Berlin. That's where Einstein, uh, you know, was a professor. Um, this, uh, you know, he says that it's, it's unethical, essentially, it's unethical for patients not to be told about absolute benefits of any drug. So when it comes to heart disease, I have patients who see me and I always tell them, explain to them, say, listen, you know, this is, uh, you know, there's the, ev the evidence we have is, you know, I'm, I'm very honest with my patients, say, listen, there's a caveat here. This is an industry-sponsored study. There are big problems and issues and concerns. There's non-transparent data. But I say, based upon my interpretation of the evidence, if you don't get side effects, if you don't get side effects and you take this drug religiously every day for the next five years, if you had a heart attack, then there's a one in 83 chance it will improve your longevity and about one in 39 chance it will prevent a further heart attack. Just because I want patients, and, and many patients will choose to take the drug on that information. And some patients, in fact, I wrote about one patient uh, who decided he was a, a mathematician. 
you know, he was a statistician and he decided um, to go down a lifestyle approach and refused and didn't want to take a statin. But it was absolutely fine because that was, that's what we call it, it's the ethical practice of medicine. A lot of cardiologists and doctors out there will be like, oh my God, you know, I can't believe it. But actually the strange thing is, Sean, that a lot of cardiologists, academics, professors, lipid doctors, they don't even understand the evidence themselves. That's the crazy thing. You know, John Ioannidis is considered, I consider the Stephen Hawking of medicine, professor of medicine statistics at Stanford. And he wrote a, a paper where they talked about one survey that 70% of healthcare practitioners, and this includes even academics, you know, failed a simple test on their understanding of evidence-based medicine. So I take the data that's there and I give it to my patients in a transparent way. And in addition to talking about lifestyle changes that are going to improve their risk factors and their quality of life. Uh, and I think that's the best way we should be practicing. In fact, I think, you know, it's the kind of thing I would want to know. I'm sure that's what you would want to know if, if a doctor is going to prescribe you a pill. You'd want to know exactly what benefit you're getting for you as an individual. What are the potential harms? Um, are there any alternatives? Is there anything else to do? And then make a decision yourself. And of course, that's a dynamic process. You may change your mind a few months down the line. You, you may decide to take a statin and think after a while, hmm, you know, I'm not feeling so good or, you know, I, I'm, the lifestyle stuff's already working for me. Um, I'm going to stop the statin. And, that, and that's fine. You know, as long as patients are given the information in a transparent way, then um, it's a win-win for everybody. You know, there's recently been uh, some, some new uh, drugs coming out there that, uh, you know, like uh, the, the PCSK9 inhibitors, where we can now get our, our cholesterol almost down to, LDL cholesterol almost down to zero. I mean, it, you can get it down ridiculously low. Are you concerned about that and, and sort of the continued desire to lower cholesterol lower and lower? That is to say, are there some possible problems with extremely low cholesterol? I mean, if you listen to vegan doctors, they think, you know, getting your LDL cholesterol to 50, 60 is your quote-unquote heart attack-proof zone. But I've seen a number of, again, granted these are epidemiologic or associational studies showing that low cholesterol being associated with increased all-cause mortality, increased cancer rates, increased rates of dementia, so on and so forth. And a lot of people will point to reverse causality, but I've seen some that are 20 years yeah. out that, that show oh, that. Yeah. Is there a concern with our obsession to get this cholesterol down super low in order to prevent oh, heart attack? Uh, oh, absolutely. This is, you know, based upon the flawed thinking, Mendelian randomization genetic studies showed that people with genetically low cholesterol had um, less, you know, almost no or very little heart disease. But as you point out, there was no reduction. It didn't mean they, they were going to live longer. And, um, you know, we're also talking about using a drug, which comes with side effects, to push down a biomarker. Um, and not thinking about all the other consequences. The, the trials so far haven't shown any significant reduction, as far as I'm aware, in all-cause mortality on these, on these drugs. I think the other interesting thing is we know that as you're older, uh, LDL seems to be protective. Uh, I was involved in a systematic review published in the BMJ in 2016 that showed that there was no association in people over 60 with LDL cholesterol and heart disease, and interestingly, an inverse association with all-cause mortality. In other words, the higher LDL, the less likely you are to die. And the plausible mechanism for that is cholesterol is involved in the immune system. And it may well be that LDL is protecting elderly patients from infections that, that may kill them, such as pneumonia or gastrointestinal infections, et cetera. So I think there is, again, this is just really bad science, um, Sean. It's really, really bad science. And, yeah, you know, it's, driven, and it's, driven, it's driven by money. It's primarily driven by money. Because yeah, I, that, I, I, the, the longer we have this cholesterol fear out there, um, you know, then, uh, and, and the, these companies have invested lots of money in these drugs. So for them, they cannot, they cannot fail in, in their prescription of getting these drugs out there. They cannot fail. So we need to really shift that paradigm uh, away from, you know, and I, th I think some companies are looking in anti-inflammatory drugs, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, Sean, unless, um, you know, unless we get better research where we're producing drugs that literally are completely side effect free, uh, the, the future of solving our healthcare crisis, the future of reducing the burden of heart disease is going to be through lifestyle. It's going to be through prevention, through lifestyle, uh, not through mass medication. You know, even statins, interestingly, haven't reduced um, mortality, cardiovascular mortality in the population, even in high risk. You know, so the data that's there suggests that uh, over 12 years across European countries, published again in the BMJ, um, taking different risk groups, that so there was no attribution to increased statin use and reduction in cardiovascular mortality. And the reason for that actually is not because the data is necessarily fraudulent. It's because the data is pretty underwhelming when you look at it. So even in secondary prevention, Sean, based upon uh, industry-sponsored trials, so again, best case scenario, and selected patients that are able to tolerate statins for several years, the median increase, if you take the statistics slightly differently, 
uh, and average it out, the median increase in life expectancy of people taking statins in secondary prevention, people with heart disease, over five years is just over four days. So if you think about that and then you add it into the fact that 50% of patients will stop their statin within one to two years, even people who have a heart disease, then it's easy to actually give a scientific explanation without suggestion of fraud in terms of the actual data that's published, why statins have not reduced um, mortality in the population. Because the, the, media, the, the increase in life expectancy is small uh, in those groups and half to most patients stop their statins anyway, because uh, often because of side effects. So this has been a failed experiment. You know, the mass prescription of statins um, has been a failed experiment. But the real issue I have is that they continue to be prescribed by doctors in the States and across the world in an unethical manner and not deliberately. The doctors don't do it deliberately, but unwittingly, you know, we are practicing unethical medicine if we're not giving patients a choice about whether or not they want to take the statin based upon their absolute benefits. Yeah, I mean, I, I am still shocked that even in 2019, where I'll, I'll have people because they'll, they'll send me their labs and whatnot, and they'll say that, you know, I, I went to the doctor and, you know, everything looked favorable, you know, as far as triglycerides, HDL, inflammatory markers, low insulin sensitivity, high, they'll have an, an LDL cholesterol is not even that high. I mean, maybe 150 or 160, and their doctor is knee-jerk sending them down the road to take statins. And I mean, there are much yeah. more things that go into just a simple, you know, uh, you know, myopic focus on LDL, because you know, we've got things like the Mesa calculator, which at least you, you can sort of rest stratify people with all these risk factors and, and why we still continue just to focus on this one variable as if it's the only thing that matters to me is shocking. Yeah. And I know, listen, so Sean, even to simplify, even high risk primary prevention, Cochrane review showed no reduction in all cause mortality from statins. So I think the only people that should be offered statins in my view are people who uh, have established heart disease, possibly people with familial hyperlipidemia, you know, that's another topic, you know, altogether because we don't have randomized controlled trial data, reliable stuff on them, but we don't have any other thing to treat them. And of course, a significant portion of those patients are going to have premature heart disease. So I can understand the thinking behind that. But really, everybody else, you know, I can see no justification whatsoever to take a stand. Dr. Maholtra, what do you think would need to happen in order for like the lifestyle intervention to be kind of the primary focus with folks who are coming in with, with issues versus just giving them a, a statin prescription right out the gate? A complete overhaul of the system. A complete overhaul of the system. We need to tackle this at the very root. Um, we need to change medical training. We need to change incentives for doctors, remove financial incentives for prescribing drugs. We need to get rid of these so-called targets that were in by guideline boards that are stacked full of people who are not up to date with the evidence or have financial ties to the industry. The whole healthcare system in the United States, uh, you know, not the UK is not far behind, is, is completely finance-based and it's completely unethical. Uh, and I think patients uh, are becoming more and more aware of that. And it's a false economy because you know, an, an increasingly uh, an unhealthy population is also an economically unproductive one. You know, this bubble is going to burst soon. It, it, it's, it's, it has to burst. It's going to burst. Um, but we need to really, you know, excuse this cliche. We need to knock down the house and rebuild it again completely. We need to tackle it at the very root. And that means even changing the law around, you know, how, uh, how doctors prescribe medications. Um, but yeah, you know, there needs to be uh, the medical training um, has to also change postgraduate training doctors who have to get CME points, etc. I mean, and there's a big issue around, um, you know, pharmaceutical sponsorship of medical conferences, you know, the, the whole system has been tainted by commercial influence. Um, and I think that's a major problem. I've got no problem with, uh, with drug, we need drug companies to produce good drugs, but they're not, they don't seem to be doing much of that at the moment. They're more worried about marketing than they are on research and development because the system is geared that way. So we need to really just overhaul the whole system. I mean, I can't, I can't agree more. You know, I see, I, I see that, you know, particularly in the United States where we have so many for-profit, you know, medical systems and hospital systems and so on and so forth. Even the, even the nonprofit ones are still, you know, very much concerned with, with how much money and, you know, to some degree you have to understand they have to pay the light bill. But I think sure. the NHS at least has a sort of a unified thing where you could, you could pass a sweeping change, I think, and, and get it out to the masses pretty more easily than you can in the United States. So I, I, you know, personally, I mean, you know, like I saw when, you know, we've got this huge opioid, opioid prescription uh, abuse, you know, people dying from drug addiction from that. And it became part of the required, you know, mandatory CME credits that we would have as physicians. I would certainly like to see lifestyle, you know, some mandatory lifestyle stuff being part of the part of that. I think that'd be a good place to start. But I mean, I agree that yeah. complete overhaul. I mean, we have 
uh, you know, we train armies and armies of people on the back end. That is to say, you know, lab techs and radiology techs and, you know, uh, nursing assistants and everybody that deal with the sick people. We have nobody at the front end. And that should be part of it. We should capture that as physicians because right now they're, they're going, they go to coaches and trainers. That should be something the medical, the healthcare industry, if we're really interested in health, should be capitalizing. We should have armies of prevention techs that can go to people's houses and teach them to cook and teach them to shop and teach them to exercise. And I think that should be sure. where we put our, put our money in. But, you know, as you know, Absolutely, Sean, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think, you know, I think the thing we need to do, you know, as a, as a group of people in, in this space, um, I think we, you know, I've realized with the stuff I've been doing that we need to um, collectively fight for it. It's not going to happen passively. You know, uh, I talk about, um, you know, when you look at things that have happened, uh, you know, amazing advancement in health or in public health, you know, look at how we tackled smoking. It took a very long time before we were able to really get smoking reduction down through regulations, public smoking bans, for example, making unacceptable, et cetera, uh, banning uh, tobacco advertising, uh, 50 years between the first links to smoking and lung cancer before that happened. Um, because industry were very powerful and opposed, um, you know, uh, those people that were, were calling them out and people got attacked for it. So, I would say that, that we've got the science, we've got the evidence to rapidly, uh, theoretically improve the health of the Americans, of, 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 West, of, of Europeans, of, of Asians, the whole of the world. We've got that evidence. Um, the science, but the science alone is not enough. We have to overcome opposition from vested interests, but we have to fight for it. We have no choice. Same. Thank you very much. I know we've kind of kept you longer than, than we intended. Uh, appreciate your hospitality with your time. Um, can you give us a quick uh, just how to find you, what you're up to, where people can see you speak, or uh, any information? I know you've got your book, The P.I.P. Diet. Hopefully, people will check sure. that out. Um, sure, and then sure. we'd like um, to, you know we'd like to get you back on again, and, and once you get that paper, you're trying to get pushed out there. We'd love to see how that goes. So thanks. No, that'd be great, Sean. Yeah, and I mean my my second book, I think, which may be more interesting certainly for the American population because it'll be released in the states, it'll be out next year, and I'll, I'll cover a lot of these issues really also about the solutions behind what we can do. Um, but yeah, for me, I'm on, I'm on Twitter as uh, Dr. Asim Alhotra. I, I, I post a lot of stuff on Facebook as well, just under Asim Alhotra. Um, Instagram, if people are interested in that, lifestyle medicine doctor. So um, I tend to put, you know, stuff I'm campaigning on or, 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 you know, things I'm discussing or places I'm speaking at or, you know, meeting politicians or the London mayor or whatever else. The stuff I'm doing, I, I, you know, you would find me, uh, you know, uh, through those channels. I have a website called drasim.com as well. Um, I occasionally put blogs out, but also, um, you know, that links to some of my private work if people are interested in, in, uh, in consultations with me too. Awesome. We will definitely link that stuff to the show notes. Thank you so much for your time and coming on the show. Thanks a lot, guys. Hey, folks. Human Performance Outliers podcast is growing. And due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.